You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Interview Podcast. Um, thanks for joining us. And like uh, always, go to iTunes and Facebook and all those places that you find things and uh, give us positive feedback and more people will find us. Uh, thanks for listening. And I think you're really going to enjoy today's show because I know that I am. Uh, this is a, about a Netflix series called Wild Wild Country. And uh, I have two very special guests here. I want to start with our new guest. Uh, it's uh, Chris Pipkin from Emmanuel College. Uh, Chris is actually responsible for this show. He contacted us to ask, uh, to just recommend it, basically. And I followed up and asked if he'd like to be on the show with me. Uh, Chris, how you doing? Hey, doing just fine, Danny. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's a big it's a big honor to uh, to get to have this conversation with you all. Oh no, man, I'm really happy you could do it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then maybe about why this um, Netflix documentary series you felt like it was a good fit for this show. Sure. Um, I am an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I know that's something that you almost never get on uh, the Christian Humanist Network. <laughs> it's but, totally, uh, a- totally uh, alien to us. Yes. Um, but but yeah, I've been listening uh, to your show for a while, um, partly because I, I like weird stuff. Um, I'm interested <laughs> in, in weird stuff, and yours is, seems to be kind of like the um, – if I can be so bold, the freak show of the uh, Christian Humanist Network. Um, That's the nicest thing anybody said to me in a long time. Yeah. I um, I just enjoy the very sort of eccentric and varied topics that um, that you all cover. Um, um, two of the things that I just um, noticed um, about this uh, about this documentary is is um, obviously the capitalism um, that. Uh, the Rajneeshis kind of use, and I guess we'll get to that. Um, and and that's sort of been a topic that's come up a lot on on this show. And I thought you'd be interested in in talking about it. In addition to the fact that this is a religious sect, um, and uh, that seemed to track pretty well with the themes of the show as well. Mainly, though, I watched this documentary. Um, it was amazing. I wanted to hear podcasts about it, um, and at the time, I didn't see many podcasts on it and 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 so yeah that's part of the reason that i made the recommendation oh man that's so so grateful you did um i had kind of vaguely remember hearing about the show until your uh, voicemail that you sent uh which by the way you can go to the website uh and there's a little microphone or something at the top uh if you click uh, click on that you can leave a voicemail and i can even play your voice on air but uh, and that's what chris did but um i sort of heard about the the series but i didn't really it didn't cross my really my radar um and my wife and i started watching it right after that and i was just sort of blown away by exactly what you're saying, it's kind of like the perfect fit for this show. We've got some a really strange mix of um, economics and conspiracy and religion all sort of uh, melded into one uh, and politics, of course, all melded into one 
gigantic, strange story. And so I thought it was like really, really perfect. And so thank you so much uh, for reaching out. And thanks again for uh, coming on the show. It's one of the things yeah, of I, I kind of uh, uh, pride myself, if that's okay, uh, about the show is a, is giving people a platform to, uh, to, to show how smart they are. And so uh, this is uh, one of the reasons we're here. So thanks so much, Chris. Um, and joining us, uh, Chris and I today, um, a veteran of this show is uh, Todd Pedler, um, professor of physics at Luther College. Uh, Todd's been on the show here quite a few, quite a bit recently, Elon Musk and Metropolis and now this show. Um, but Todd's on the show when he found out we were doing it because he has a very special connection to all of this. Todd, uh, you want to talk about that? Boy, that, you know, I hate to be letting people down, but I was not a Rajneeshi myself. <laughs> oh, man. <So>. <laughs> you would look no, so good in the orange pants, though, I have to yeah, say. Right. Right. Well, I am I'm wearing my, <laughs> uh, my, my red and black uh, flannel today. So, you know, I could fit in maybe. Um, yeah, really. Uh, and I, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll get to this in, in a bit, but it is, um, it's my backyard. I mean, this is my backyard growing up. And uh, I was in junior high and high school when these events went down. And uh, I remember them like it was yesterday. Um, and this, this, uh, I am, I am also e equally grateful to Chris for bringing this up because I had missed this. <laughs> I had no idea this was there. And uh, suddenly I'm transported back to my 13 year old self, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, that's, uh, that's the connction. And were you one of the uh, poisoning victims, Todd? <laughs> oh, no, no. Okay. No, no. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. You it didn't was go the to that was, was the Dallas. That was not my, my, my hometown. <laughs> was that like at a racks or uh, there was some sort of old restaurant that that all happened at, right? Uh, with a salad bar. But uh, anyway, we'll get into those details, I guess, as we go on. Yep. Um, so this is a good time. Let me, as much as I can, just sort of. Um, recap the plot of this series. It's a six-part documentary series that's probably about seven hours long. Each episode was over an hour, and uh, and it's uh, intricately told with lots of cliffhangers and uh, and lots of foreshadowing. I will sort of uh, say that about the, the nature of this film. Um, I didn't think all of it had the payoff that I was expecting in terms of the, the way the some of the events were foreshadowed. They didn't really come to fruition as uh, heavily as I thought they might. But um, nonetheless, this is one of the most fascinating stories um, that I've you know seen in a long time. The basic gist of this story is there's this Indian guru called the Bhagwan um, or Osho as he later on becomes known. And, uh, and so some people will refer to him by each name, right? And so he's this kind of um, spiritual guru in India that is the, the series opens, he has this kind of following of a lot of really wealthy people, um, not just Indians, but Americans. And, uh, and there's this following in this uh, little village in India um, that's their kind of home, home base. And for whatever reason, not entirely clear to me, uh, he decides to um, um, find a, a kind of plant a homeland uh, somewhere else for the, for the Rajneeshis as the name of the, of the religion here. And so, they find some giant property in Oregon in Todd's backyard and, uh, and this giant, uh, vacant property that had been just sitting there unused next to the small town called Antelope. Um, a very tiny little backwater, you know, conservative old retirement village, basically. Um, they build this, um, new city, um, that was be called, it was end up being called, 
uh, Rajneesh Purim, right? Am I pronouncing Rajneesh it Rajneesh Purim? Yeah. Or yeah. Rajneesh Purim? Yeah, yeah. Something so, like that. Yeah. And so obviously uh, you develop this culture clash. Um, the, the Rajneeshis are very kind of free love and uh, and very hippie-ish in a lot of ways. And it's in stark contrast to the, the you know, traditional American Western conservatism, conservatism of, of the local area. And there becomes this political de- battle between um, the city of Rajneesh Parim and um, the city of Antelope. And this political battle just sort of escalates. And I don't know, I don't know, I'm going to get into every detail right now, but eventually the Rajneeshis take over the town of, uh, politically take over the town of Antelope, first by buying up all the property perfectly legally, uh, and then be setting themselves up and winning the elections perfectly legally. Uh, and that forces the hands of the people who don't like them, who bring the state government in, and that forces the Rajneeshis into doing things. And then you have this sort of like escalating arms race of uh, legal uh, legal maneuvering that um, ultimately uh, ends up with uh, criminal trial, trials. There's a poisoning scandal uh, that happens because they're apparently they're trying to uh, see if they can't uh, affect a statewide or a countywide vote by making enough people sick that they won't show up at the polls on a certain day. <laughs> and so there's this uh, this like uh, I forget what I forget which uh, uh, what it was uh, some sort of microbe they were putting on a salad bar somewhere. And uh, and there's a an attempted murder within the Rajneeshi community itself. And all of this escalates uh, with uh, the Bhagwan kind of being escorted out of the America. He's sort of um, kicked out. Um, and all of it, though, he's sort of a, almost not even a central character. Really, the main character of this is his first lieutenant and secretary, uh, whose last name is Sheila. And uh, Sheila is this really kind of powerful presence um, who is this little spark plug of, of, of ambition and political power and rhetoric, really. And uh, and the really kind of follows her leadership uh, during this tumultuous time. Um, and the story is told um, both in with a lot of uh, archival footage that the Rajneeshis themselves must have shot much of it. Um, a lot of newsreel footage of the time. This was a big story. So you have national news reports that they show, but, and they supplement this with interviews with a lot of the key players today. Bhagwan is dead, but, uh, Sheila is still alive and she's narrating this from her perspective. Um, the lawyer for the group whose name was John Bowerman, I believe. Um, he, um, is that, am I right? Do I have the wrong person? Um, uh, Swami George? Prem Niran. Niran uh, is, uh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember who their names are, but, um, yeah. uh, but anyway, he's telling some of the story and one of the people who's convicted of a crime, she's telling some of the story. So you have a lot of the a first person account of this, um, you know, some 30, some years later, um, 40, some years later. And so, uh, you have a, a really fascinating story that, um, if you haven't seen, you should, you should definitely watch because it opens up a lot of discussions. Um, and like I said, I, that's just the kind of a gloss of the plot. What other mm-hmm. elements of the story stand out to you guys that we should sort of talk about right now before we get started? Well, I, one of the things that I think it becomes interesting is the interplay between Ma and Sheila and, and, and the Bhagwan. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they are, uh, rent in twain <laughs> over this controversy and it seems as though the Rajneeshis uh, follow one or the other uh, at some level in terms of their sympathies in terms of uh, um, you know how they believe uh, what happened 
came about. Uh, some would argue that Sheila, it's all Sheila. Uh, others would argue, no, it's it was the Bagwan through Sheila. Uh, uh, and that that whole interplay is very interesting and memorable for me. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a really interesting um, dynamic when you have someone who's this powerful spiritual figure and you're not going to be terribly practical if you're a powerful spiritual people figure, but you're quite compelling. Um, and so you get administrators. Um, and I think part of the big question is, um, you know, is, is Sheila, who is a fantastic administrator, um, very practical, very cunning, um, is she... Um, to what extent can we implicate her for everything that the group does? Um, and to what extent is she used by the Bhagwan and then discarded as kind of a scapegoat um, at the end? Uh, yeah. And, and at some point late in the story, um, just to sort of get about that division between the two, um, because she is like an incredibly, I mean, charismatic person who is also incredibly like good at, city development. I mean, it's amazing what they were able to accomplish uh, out there in the middle of nowhere, building like a legitimate city with a legitimate economy and an airport and everything else. Um, and infra like electronic and, uh, uh, plumbing infrastructure it's a city overnight essentially arises under her supervision mm -hmm. um and so yeah she definitely has this kind of administrative acumen and at some point late in the game these um sort of like hollywood types uh become bhagwan's new <laughs> friends right, right? And, and you've got this uh this division uh, this split in within the uh the rajneeshis themselves and so not only is there this so kind of the focus at that point shifts from the external attacks mm -hmm. on the community to the internal divisions um, that uh, arise out of that. And so, and yeah, and a lot of, a lot more unanswered questions than answered questions than you might mm -hmm. be used to seeing in a documentary. Um, I, the, I left feeling very ambiguous about a lot of things when I finished mm -hmm. the show. Um, yeah. Um, other, uh, yeah. I, someone's going to yeah. say something. Yeah. Todd. Well, no, there, um, I, something we can't leave out, and we won't, I'm sure, in later discussion. But um, during the election controversy, the they they, ta they they packed the town with imported homeless people. Yes, yes, right. And that that whole thing that actually is, you know, that sounds like, oh, that's just that's obviously such a terrible thing, and and it is. They were using them, um, but it, it's interesting to listen to them. Uh, reflect on their transition of life from uh, homelessness and hopelessness to what they had there. Um, it, you know, you can't take it all uh, positively, of course, their their situation. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just found that completely fascinating. Um, yeah. The way that it was portrayed. It's so many of those little subplots are so like, like ambiguously and just have such ambiguous morality and and it's so difficult to come to a clear judgment about right and wrong here right because mm -hmm. you're they're being the, the in order to kind of sway the, a countywide election they were trying to up their supporters and they went all over the country in buses and started just picking up homeless people from big cities <laughs> all over the country and shipping them in yeah. and as long as they were there for six months they were citizens right and which right. forces the government ultimately to 
break the law and, and change election law in midstream because they were effectively mm-hmm. using the law it was as it was written. And so you have the government actually doing something that was probably more immoral or, or unethical than the, the thing that they were trying to stop because they were sort of breaking um, precedent in order to stop a, an immediate situation. And so that's like one of the like really strange legal tensions that come up in this uh, show is pretty with, with to a certain degree the poisoning and attempted murder notwithstanding uh <laughs> but to a certain degree most of what the rajneeshis did were within the confines of american law and people just didn't like who was using the law and they kept moving the goalposts essentially <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to make it harder for them and therefore kind of instigating this like escalating battle between the two mm-hmm. so um yeah go ahead um chris yeah, yeah, I, I think I think definitely up to a certain point, right? Yeah, um, I, I <laughs> mean, initially your sympathy, um, I think my my sympathy initially um, is largely with the Rajneeshis um, until they start getting really creepy. Yeah, um, until until they, um, you know, obviously I, I don't agree with. Um, a lot of the uh, new norms they're trying to establish in their society or whatever, but there's kind of this sort of, you know, live and let live, let them be over there and do what they want to do. And the town of Antelope is pretty far anyway. So why can't they just, you know, kind of leave it. Um, But, uh, but yeah, once they start trying to like mass poison, in fact, succeed in mass poisoning people and try to carry out, um, you know, um, assassinations uh, of, of key figures who are who are sort of blocking them and keeping them from doing what they want to do. Um, it's hard to continue to feel sympathetic at least to Sheila and the inner circle and, and, you know, and the leadership, I do still feel sympathetic to like someone like Niren, um, right. Who, uh, who, who apparently just had a really amazing time and did the best he could to, you know, try to help his community. Um, and I, I think he's rather naive, um, but I, I do like Mm -hmm. him, um, Mm -hmm. you know, by the end. Um, but, but, but yeah, they, they, they do a lot of, creepy stuff even even within the community uh mm-hmm. sheila is you know um monitoring her own people and poisoning her own people right yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah and, and you definitely get this sort of you almost see the development of a totalitarian state out of a out of a socialist utopia sort of not really because it's highly built on capitalism but uh, which is something we'll get into <laughs> a little bit but yeah, yeah, yeah. um and so yeah it, it's a, a uh, as a case study in politics and religion, I, I don't know that you can do much better in terms of mm-hmm. finding something that's going to open up really interesting political philosophy questions. I, I would love to see City of Man take this on, honestly, and and uh, and see what they do. Um, that would be fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so there was uh, NP. I found a bunch of articles. If you go to the website at sectarianreviewpodcast.com, find the show notes to this episode. I'm going to provide a bunch of links because lots of people have written about this, um, both in secular journals and in religious magazines as well. Um, but NPR in their review of it, they had a really um, telling paragraph that I think gets at some of this uh, ambiguity. What's interesting about wild, wild country is that it so effectively separates justice and fairness from likability. There is a good chance that you won't feel, you won't fully neatly like anybody in this documentary. You, <laughs> you won't fully sympathize with any position struck by anyone, particularly in the early going when the focus is more on a culture clash and less on the more and more extreme measures Sheila pleaded guilty to taking uh, 
as things progressed. But there are still questions about how governments should operate and what it means to have a democracy, really, that wind through the show like vines. So do racism and religious bigotry, even when the people at whom they're being aimed aren't particularly virtuous. It's possible, after all, to show bias in your treatment of the good and the not so good alike. And so that's a really, I think, great summation of Mm -hmm. this uh, series kind of brilliant ambiguity. Uh, it's one of the most kind of morally ambiguous <laughs> documents that I've ever seen, I think. And so, um, mm-hmm. um, and so let's kind of, uh, try to dig into this a little bit more by, uh, letting Todd talk about what it was sort of like, uh, from kind of a first person, uh, standpoint. Like, so what was it like, um, living through something like this and then maybe reliving mm-hmm. it through the documentary? Well, so, um, I think I'll just keep this fairly short because there's so much to talk about in the in the documentary. But um, growing up, so I grew up in in Western Washington State, um, about four hours north of uh, three hours north of the Oregon border. Uh, probably would be five hours for me to get to the Dalles, which is a, a city on the Columbia River that is, is north of Antelope, but in the same county. Uh, that's the site of the poisonings. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't recall exactly when I first heard of the Roshnishis, but it was early on. Um, probably, I, I, I would have been in sixth or seventh grade, I think. Um, 1981 to 85 covers um, my sixth grade spring through junior year fall. So that 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 point that is the the time when, between the founding of Rajneesh Param and the um, the indictments that were handed down. Um, so those four years, um, I, I actually had intended last night, and I just forgot to uh, to check my junior year high school yearbook, which uh, would have covered the end of this time to see if it, the current events pictures that they always have in these, if there are you know Rajneesh photos. I, I'm pretty sure there were, but. And, and I want to, you know, if I if I locate them, I will definitely, uh, you know, snap a picture of my junior year uh, yearbook. Not not now, yearbooks are popular right now. Um, <laughs> things that are written in them. <laughs> but uh, anywho, uh, there, I assure you, there's nothing uh, no, no, nothing embarrassing that will be found in the in, 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 in there. But uh, anyway, the video of him getting on his plane. <laughs> Um, the video of him getting on his plane after he pled guilty is something I, de- I, I remember seeing those, that, that very video stream. Hmm. Um, I distinctly remember the story of his having died early in 1990, which, uh, made big news in the Northwest also, uh, where I was a junior in college at that point, all the, uh, all the principal players, um, Char- Charles Turner, um, who was the U.S. Attorney James Weaver, who was um, uh, Senator Representative, uh, uh, Senator I think from from uh, from Oregon, um, and and Sheila and the Bhagwan, hmm. I, I, you know they they are figures that are just it, I, I literally was transported back to my youth in this in hmm. this show. Um, I you know our dinner time our dinner time conversation often uh, centered around the news, which was on in a TV. Uh, you know, we watched the evening news while we ate dinner. I don't know if the people still do that. I, I don't now, but um, <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, pictures of him driving around in his Rolls Royces. that are usually decorated with flowers um, and always, you know, always the namaste uh, that, that is, uh, you know, his, his perpetual pose. Um, 
I remember definitely the news accounts of the cultic aspects of the group. Um, sexual proclivities were front and center, and you must remember I was a teenage boy. <laughs> so the lurid, the lurid details um, that were available, I mean, at least those were available in the rather more tame public news media that we had at the time, um, were, of course, fascinating to me, what wouldn't be in junior high. Um <laughs> And I know, I know, Danny, you've talked about similar, similar issues on uh, Sectarian Review frequently, but, but during my junior high days, my family and I were part of a Baptist church that was moving towards fundamentalism, so cults were like the things we latched onto, like flies on, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know what, and um, uh, as negative examples, right, Um yeah, in the whole doomsday, the, the sort of doomsday aspect of, of this group, um, you know, this is the Reagan years, Cold War ending, but flaring up, you know, in the early 1980s. Um, and so some of the things I saw in the, the episode where they, they sort of went that direction for a while, um, all the pictures of, of uh, Sheila's basement. Uh, bunker that was, yeah. and uh, and the wiretapping stuff, all that. Just I, I I remember these things like it was like it was yesterday, um, and really, you know, connection to real life continues today. Uh, you know, uh, ironically, it's a young life camp now. Yeah, I want to get to that actually. <laughs> yeah. um, we have to talk about. That yeah, that, that's... I'm not sure I like the portrayal uh, that they gave to that. Uh, no, but... I hated that. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's I interesting. Mean, I mean, I I I think. Young Life is a perfectly fine organization. I've I've known great but, people who. But boy, what yeah, what <laughs> pictures they chose though. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get Let's to just that. Set this yeah. up as a parallel. Yeah, yeah we yeah. will get there. Talk about foreshadowing. Anyway, yeah, we'll foreshadow thing. that. This yeah. is a big thing for my life, and and this is why I had to be on this show. So. Yeah. Well, and so my guess is Todd that. At the time, living through it, it was all sort of the Rajneeshis were the bad guy. And that the community, there was probably this, this show, I think, tries to cast a little bit of, um, like I said, ambiguity about, um, who's good or bad in that. At the time, you probably weren't feeling that, right? Or not as a junior high kid in a Baptist church where yeah. uh, you point the finger at the cult, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think we can be sympathetic to people without affirming the, you know, the, the belief structure uh, or the pra- or even, you know, many of the practical things. Um, but, yeah, it was it was clear, you know, uh, and I and I still I still think I believe this, that the uh, that the Bhagwan was a pretty bad guy, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, we, you know, the Rolls Royces were evidence for us and sufficient evidence for us. That this guy's just fleecing these people and essentially using them as a slave labor force to to enrich himself. And that was part of the discussion uh, that I remember at the time. And I don't think the documentary has changed my mind on that score, but I've certainly having seen more than one ever would have seen on the news of the people themselves who were roped into this or you know sucked into this by whatever charismatic uh um character that the leaders had i definitely found myself feeling much more sympathy than i would have had been capable of because i just wouldn't have had access to that information yeah yeah and and on that and maybe chris could speak to this a little bit too um i didn't i never got the appeal of the Bhagwan, like the way he's depicted in this, he's just this kind of creepy guy who's just got a weird smile and then he's got his hands in that position all the time. Right. And, and yeah. And like, I never got what did it, what hole it was that he was filling for these. I mean, his, he seemed to be a very, very good at 
selling something to people who had lots of money to spend. Right. And so, um, and they were, uh, I, I never got quite what the appeal was. Uh, I don't know if you have any thought on that. I'm not sure. That's, that's the, like, that's the question that always comes up in what I've read and what I've heard on this is like, what, what is, what is up with his beautiful beard? And everyone's saying how beautiful he is and describing how his beard waves in the wind, you know, in such a nostalgic way. Um, everyone just seems to be in love with him um you know and yeah. in, in a very in as many senses as you want to you know as you want to mm-hmm. take it um um he's i've heard i heard somebody um and i forget who um describe him as kind of a blank can uh, a blank canvas or a rorschach test or something like oh, that that's a good where, way to put it yeah um you know what you want what you are looking for you project onto him so mm-hmm. all those people who are talking about how they hadn't ever felt a presence as evil as that you know um until uh, since like being in the room with the ayatollah or something <laughs> like that um you know that uh that they uh um felt the same level of evil there um he reminds me a lot of um of rasputin um mm. of, of a kind mm. of a rasputin figure in that he's so mystical and um uh really some people think he's absolutely evil and other people think he's absolutely wonderful and <clears throat> ever so mm. yeah that's a, the rasputin thing is really interesting because again it's somebody who had some sort of mystical sway over powerful people right and, and something about i mean even to this day when sheila is talking i mean after i mean years after the split i mean he was mm-hmm. she was fearing for her life there for a while right from him and his people um she still recalls those days she has a picture of him and she recalls the first time she met him and, and how enthralling and great he was right and so it's more like her telling the tale now is more about one of loss than it is about anger or anything she yeah. did, never re, re never revised her opinion of him right um and so it was really uh it's really fascinating the sway that he held over over people and it, to me i can't help but wonder and we were going to talk about you know some of the threads here but um if there's something in late capitalism people who are sort of doing well in late capitalism have um, carved out a spiritual void in their life, right? And what the Bhagwan provided was a way to still be rich, happy people, but um, make it seem like you then have spiritual fulfillment out of your banal existence, right? And so the the free right. love and and this this the screaming and all that, which reminds you of one of Est or something along those lines, right? Um, uh, there's something. It seems to me that it was speaking to a very particular moment. Um, where you can sort of see the spiritual vacantness, vacantness of, of capitalism and how easy that is to sort of charm by the right yeah. snake, I suppose. I don't know. So. Well, I, you know, one of the things that it reminds me of, and we got to also remember that 81 to 85, sort of early to mid 80s, this is a time when other new agey kinds of things mm-hmm. are taking serious hold. And, um, uh, you know, and, and even really the rise of a significant presence of more traditional Hinduism and Buddhism is is mm-hmm. is uh, taking hold on the West Coast. Right. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe this I, I, I have, a, I, I guess, an easier time seeing the appeal than the two of you do, because, again, I was there in the midst of it and seeing the developments a- along the West Coast. This was... Um, 
this is sort of the area was ripe for the picking. You know, it was um, people were disenchanted with the rat race. They were disenchanted with um, with much of of traditional American culture. Um, and he provided a calm. I mean, you see so many of them talking about his calming presence. I mean, he he does actually have rather attractive eyes. If you look at, you know, <laughs> it, I mean, if if I, if I can say that, <laughs> I'll say it. yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, and and he's got this gaze on him that I think um, just it it brings for those who deeply need it. It it brings this kind of calming feeling, and by setting up the society as as he arguably did, um, he's allowing you know uh, allowing people to get out of that rat race that they are so sick of, and allow them just to explore their humanness in a way, if you know what I mean. But in a particular way, at one point he says something um, along these lines. He's like, other religions have, I mean, this has been a few weeks I've seen, and this was an early yep. episode. Um, other, you know, religions have addressed the, these spiritual problems that we're facing in modernity um, mm-hmm. and basically said, you need to cut yourselves off from the pleasures of the body and from um, the corruption of money. And what we're saying is you need to basically um, enjoy the pleasures of the body and the corruption of money. Like, mm-hmm. and so he's, so it isn't, I wouldn't say he's exactly, so he, he is finding people who are disenchanted with the rat race, but instead of removing them from the rat race, he's like re-enchanting the rat race for them in a lot of ways. Well, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, replacing one means of production with another, if you will. But, mm-hmm. but, I, but because it is done in this context of a free love and, and you know, extracting oneself because they they did extract themselves from society in many ways, right? Yeah. I mean, so I, I, you know, I I think he was sort of presenting himself. I shouldn't do this. <laughs> you while are we're being, talking. Todd is yes. so doing the, doing the motions. Yes. The namaste. All right. So, <laughs> Um, you know, he's, he's, he's finding some middle ground, yeah. right? He's trying to find some middle ground where you, the benefits of capitalism can be paired with a deep spirituality of a sort that's attractive to these people. Yeah. Chris, I, I think he's, um, finding a, I mean, if, if I want to be just purely cynical for a moment, um, I, I think, um, as an Indian guru looking to make a buck after off of these Western foreigners, he's found the best philosophy he can that can you know sort of um you know not um um not dismiss western capitalism right not Mm -hmm. not dismiss um basically living a wealthy lifestyle um i think he probably could have afforded to dismiss it a little bit more than than he did and still gotten away with it um but but i think he's looking at these Westerners coming in and he's trying to find uh, a doctrine to preach that's going to mm-hmm. settle with them so that he can get a few more Rolls Royces. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> it, um, <laughs> he's very much like, I mean, he reminds one of a prosperity gospel, uh, one of those TV preachers who needs another airplane to do ministry. Yeah. Right. You know? And so mm-hmm. uh, there, there's a, there's a sense in which he's got, 
parallels within Christianity, within mainstream Christianity, sure. um, that aren't all that different, frankly. Um, and yeah, and and he also kind of reminds me. I mean, just the way he kind of wears bling is just sort of the height of the uh, <laughs> the height of that sort of like that version of hip hop where you're just sort of conspicuously consuming everything in your path, right? right. And, and and putting it on display. Go ahead. I wonder if part of it is in a reaction against. Um, I feel like people tended to dress down. Maybe I'm wrong about this, um, but but it seems like people tended to dress down a little bit more. That was more the fashion in the you know maybe 60s and 70s. And maybe this is we're going to keep the spiritual aspects of what was going on in the 60s and 70s, but we're not going to be naive like they were. We're gonna you know we're gonna make some money, um, and we're going to choose to affirm these these um, you know these other aspects that have been sort of squelched for so long. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think you're right. He was, I mean, a savvy, you know, salesperson for uh, mm-hmm. for uh, spirituality, right? And, and so, no, I think that you're definitely on that. And he happened to find in Sheila someone who had this like brilliant mind for for business and politics, right? Who could um, extend that spiritual vision to its sort of natural extension. She's a fascinating character, and the fact that mm-hmm. she's still alive and willing to talk about this is just amazing. So, um, and and I will say, just to kind of uh, before we transition, it is also important to contextualize the the community the non rajishi community's reaction this isn't that far after jonestown um and so we have like uh vivid images of cults gone bad right in, in the in the community so that is something that I, i'm not saying it's an excuse for their bigotry which is kind of bald and blatant for me um but uh uh but in in, in the people some of the people they're interviewing in the show at least but it does at least give you sort of a, a window into some why they might have gone so far in their uh, reaction against this uh, this community. So um, um, and so, Chris, um, this uh, you have a uh, 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 I feel like this show kind of tells us something about America. Right. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. and we, we're going to get into religion and politics and economics and stuff like that. Like, what was it that you uh, what was it something that you can uh, kind of put your finger on and get the ball rolling to open up that conversation? Like, what is this? How does this instruct us about ourselves? This is a mirror of some sort. Right. I, I think in so many ways, it's it's really hard to just pick one element. Um, I mean, I guess America is the wild, wild country in the first place that they're, you know, that that it's gives it its title. Um, but, um, you know, one thing that really struck me and probably has struck tons of other people who have watched it is, um, that America was settled by small religious communities who, um, didn't necessarily get along with each other all that well. Um, and certainly did not get along with the people who were already there, Mm. but they settled there because they envisioned America as a kind of blank canvas where they could live out their vision of, um, what a perfect utopic civilization, um, is. Um, so, um, there, there's, there's something very American about that. And I think even some of the people that they, um, interviewed who are not, in the city of Antelope and having to kind of put up with the Rajneeshis, um, sort of recognize that even in the last episode, you know, you, you, they interviewed one guy who was kind of like, well, you know, let him go to trial. And if he did something wrong, then he'll do his time. If not, leave him alone, you know, let him, let him, let them do what they want to do. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think that's, um, in, in some ways very American and there seems to be kind of a, um, 
a sense that there's hypocrisy going on here that we won't let people settle in exactly the same way that, you know, that um, all these groups who weren't getting along so well with people in their home country, you know, settled and, and, um, um, and, and we're their descendants. Right. Um, I, I think there are also important differences, but um, I, I think it's, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting parallel. Yeah, I think one thing as you were talking there, there is this in our kind of uh, our national mythology, we have this, uh, these memories of the Puritans and, and the Salem witch trials and all these sorts of moments in which the quest for religious freedom turns into various forms of religious oppression and conflict, right? And so it, it we tend to think of that as part of our mythic past almost, right? Um, but this shows us, I mean, this kind of brings that mythic moment into our contemporary world and mm. shows us that it's still kind of a part of our DNA. And so um, one of the articles I found, um, oh gosh, I can't remember where it was, uh, Huffington Post maybe, um, it, it had basically drew the connection as a, using this series as a way to think about the contemporary debates about religious freedom that we're having um, in terms of like cake bakers and all this kind of thing. Right. Uh, and there is something about our rhetoric of religious freedom that conflicts with the politics of religious freedom and, and that, that we get a lot of uh, conflict in our history that, that comes out of that tension. And, and this story is a great way to think about that question. I think you're right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I also think one of the, one of the really interesting things about this, can you all hear me? Okay. I can. Um, okay. Um, one of the interesting things about this is it does also speak to how, um, divided our country is in terms of, um, you know, you can, you can view this community as kind of a little microcosm, um, of, you know, what sort of national politics are like now. Um, and that you have all these people who are, um, who are um, affecting each other's lives, but not um, not really communicating, mm-hmm. um, and and really unable to hear anyone outside of their little bubble. Um, I kind of wish, in some ways, this made me nostalgic for when this was happening in like little pockets, uh, you know, around the country and like local places, rather than just like nationally in this sort of big picture. Um, but um, but I think um, one of the really compelling things about the um, about the documentary is that depending on which side of the aisle you're on, you're going to sympathize with a certain side at least at the beginning, and then gradually as it goes on, it makes you question that, and it and it, it sort of disrupts that, right? So if you're uh, more sort of left leaning or or progressive, um, you're going to um, side more with the Rajneeshis. Um, and if you're more sort of right-leaning and conservative, it's going to be more um, the, the town of Antelope. But then there are, um, you know, th- there, there's the capitalism that the Rajneeshis <laughs> indulge in, right? Or the, um, you know, terrorism and bioterrorism or the, um, um, yeah, the the fact that they are religious, right? Not, yeah. not secularists. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, if, if you're more conservative, the people in the town invoke separation of church and state to keep prayer out of the public school, yes. right? Um, <laughs> which, uh, which is, which is great. So, so yeah, there's, um, it, 
it reminds us of the moment we're in now, um, but it doesn't map perfectly over that moment, and that's why it's that's why it's so neat as a as a documentary. Yeah, it's got the yeah, it's total disconnect. Um, Todd's going to say something here in a second, here, but, but I want to kind of follow up one thing. Just so right now we're in a moment where our kind of tribal affiliations um, overwhelm, overwhelm any kind of actual principal positions that people are holding, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, I mean, I'm no, it's no secret that I'm critical of Trump and the evangelical support of Trump, right? And so to me, that's a perfect example of this group that had for my entire lifetime been talking about family, traditional moral values, all suddenly claiming that doesn't matter, right? And so these kind of conservative voices who are against the Rajneeshis who traditionally have upheld things like the rule of law and court precedent and those sorts of things are perfectly willing to toss that out the window for an immediate um, tribal uh, purpose, right? And so I think this is, I mean, obviously happened 30, 40 years ago now, um, but it's something that is only kind of, as you said, kind of filtered into our larger society even more. Like these tribal affiliations have completely overwhelmed any kind of uh, you know, stated political like uh, affiliations or, or whatnot. Yeah. Um, Todd. Yeah. So I, what, now that you've, now that you've said uh, what you've said, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm thinking of responding to that too, uh, <laughs> as well as, as what I had in my brain as if it doesn't leak out before I'm done. Um, yeah. I, I, I would be interested to see what the response is to this, documentary six months down the road um because i you know i one of the wonderful things about it we've already said is that it complicates all binary questions right i mean it does make it does make it very hard to come down wholly on one side or the other but i can see a number of types of people that might Never, nevertheless, not be swayed by the fact that this is a very complex story. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the that's you know that's one of the frustrating things about social discourse at this point in time, is that there's very little willingness on the extreme edges of both sides to mm. see the complicated nature of things, even if while having a difficulty in seeing the complicated nature of things, will be shouting out to uh, others on the other side that they have to see the complicated nature of things. I mean, it's, we're in such a weird political moment right now. Um, so, so, you know, that's number one. Uh, number two, I thought it would, would be perhaps helpful for those who aren't familiar with the way things are in, um, in particularly in Washington state and Oregon state, um, the East side of both of those states is rather conservative and the west side is very liberal so um both of those states you have this stark contrast um the town of antelope is out in the 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 very dry very um uh ranch heavy i mean and when i say ranch heavy i mean you know there are 80,000 100,000 150,000 acre ranches out um out there just much like uh, much like most of eastern montana in that way um and this tends to be a very conservative traditional old school american um uh agricultural society on 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 both you know both in washington and in oregon 
um, a lot of the political divide in those states uh, still still exists to this day in, in, in a similar way. I mean, when we hear Oregon, we think, oh, that's a very liberal state. Well, that's because the population is is largely in, in the Portland and, and Salem corridor uh, in the west, western half where it typically is very, uh, very liberal. Um, so, you know, this is, this place is situated in a divided state on, you know, on the conservative side. So the people that we see in the town, uh, they're exactly as you might expect old West ranching folk to, uh, to react. Um, and, you know, again, that may not, they may, may not be familiar that that kind of, kind of context may not be familiar to most, most watchers. Yeah. Chris. Yeah, I heard someone suggest, actually, I was listening to another podcast called, I think it was called Weird Religion, and they were covering this, um, but um, one of the hosts on there was an Oregonian, and, and she was saying that she thought that maybe um, Sheila had thought that Oregon would be more accepting of oh. them because of um, because she, she didn't understand the sort of intricacies of Oregonian politics. Um but um, I, I thought that was an interesting um, um, thought. Um, um, but uh, another thing, um, I, I guess another aspect of this that seemed very um, American to me was uh, was the figure of Ma Sheila herself. Sure. Um, I think she's probably the most American um, figure um, in this. <laughs> um, um, she's she's admirable in a lot of ways, but she's also rather sinister. Um, um, she's, um, she's practical, um, but she's also prone to exaggeration. Um, she's very independent, but also very loyal. Um, she kind of reminds me in terms of, um, um, the way that she expresses herself a lot of times against people who are against her reminds me of Donald Trump. Um, and the, um, and, and also, um, she reminds me of uh, of Milton Satan, who I think of as kind of a proto-American, um, especially in the last episode where um, you know where she says, "I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven or to hell. Who can know? But wherever I go, I know I will make it a paradise." You know, which is exactly what Satan says. Um, That's so, amazing. Uh, I did not even pick uh, up on that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so so. So yeah, I thought I thought um, just especially in terms of her pragmatism um, and and independence, she's she's a very kind of American figure. If you want to be, you know, if you want to make that stereotype, yeah, and and she's like uh, to me, I was thinking like almost an amalgam because you're right, she's very kind of um, quick witted and willing to say provocative things to the camera um, for immediate audience reactions. Right. And so when they show her on like the Donahue show or something like that, I think it was uh, it's, it's hilarious. She's really great in those, in those moments. Um, Mm -hmm. So she does seem like she has a bit of Trump's, media savvy uh, uh, with him in, in her. But she also, I, I felt like she's almost like an amalgam of Trump and Steve Bannon. Like, cause she's mm-hmm. also got this sort of calculating <laughs> sort of Leninist uh, uh, sense of mm-hmm. organizing and, uh, and uh, rallying people for a political cause that is just like kind of cunning and, and, uh, and, and she's really great at it. Like we said, her uh, ability to build this city um, out of nowhere. I mean, it's really remarkable what she did. And at that point I'm like, I, why can't I live in a community like this? Right. You know? And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And so, but then, you know, and then I realized why I don't want to. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're right about that. And one thing that um, one of you guys was just saying um, about how 
you know, and both on the, so, you know, I think probably a left-leaning person is more, like you said, Chris, more likely to sympathize with, um, with the Rajneeshis here. Um, but that sympathy should be kind of tampered, uh, well, not tampered. That's a bad word to use. Tempered, tempered. tempered excuse me, with a, uh, uh, with, with some acknowledgement that they were like, they literally were doing the bad things that they were accused of doing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, and so what we have in this moment, our current political moment, as Todd has said, is this kind of polarized, um, immediate, um, categorization of someone as either all good or all bad. And what this documentary does is that it puts a, an image in front of your face that you're tempted to apply that kind of heuristic to, but then mm. um, it doesn't let you go through with it. It's actually good for your imagination. I think it's a workout for your um, moral political imagination because our normal templates of categorizing and uh, just don't work with the situation. Um, the government who succeeded in upholding the law did so by basically circumventing the law. Right. And, and so there's a, a, there's no sort of like good guy in this, in this story that, fits our kind of current patterns. And I think it's a, it's a great exercise for everybody to go through this and figure out like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and I think that's very deliberate on the part of the, of the filmmakers. I think they, there's even a lot of information that either they withhold until later or that they withhold, um, entirely um in order to sort of sculpt this into a narrative that does cause us to sort of question where we come down and i felt like the prosecutorial the way they're telling the story here um i I felt like it was kind of uh i guess really kind of told from a I don't know how to say this. Pardon me, listeners. I, I fumble for words here, but I feel like they were kind of making up a mythology about what actually happened. And they made it sound like they went through all this legal work and justice was done. But when you look at what was actually accomplished, they only um, spent a very short time of j- in jail. And that was on some technical thing about immigration, right? Um, they, they, mm-hmm. they broke a few immigration laws uh, in order to getting people over. Uh, the Bhagwan was fleeing the country and they stopped him and arrested him in North Carolina, put him on trial where he was found guilty and forced out of the country. And so they really didn't accomplish anything they did, but they're telling this in this heroic way, like they stood up for the American citizen. And I felt like the, the prosecutorial um, uh, action here was purely for show and kind of to cover what was driven only by kind of um, bigotry, really, uh, because they couldn't really get them. They didn't get anybody on the poisoning. They didn't. Well, at least in court, in terms of what was narrated in the show, the poisoning wasn't ever prosecuted. The only person who served serious time was Jane Stork, who's uh, uh, who mm-hmm. tried to kill somebody. Right. Another Rajneeshi. Um, and she's the only one who served any time uh, for really anything. And so mm-hmm. they made it sound like they're a more dangerous cult than they may have actually been. Um, I don't know. how. I don't know where I was going with that. But I feel well, like, she, yeah. I mean, Sheila did. Sheila did serve time. Um, Jane Stork was in for a brief time and she actually got out with time served um, during a controversy about her extradition um, that they didn't really say. I I got that from a a shoot, a link that I'll have to send you because it's a pretty good summary of some of the, you know, the the where are they now questions. Um, And I, I, I do think that some of the 
some of the charges had something to do with the poisonings because I, just based on my recollection of the of the conversations that the the lead prosecutor guy um, uh, kept kept referring to but but regardless you know uh, yeah it was it was largely immigration issues um, that uh, that they did get rung up on uh, for sure. Although, uh, you know, the Bhagwan uh, flying off in, in dark of night was probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think it was really um, a mercy that he flew off the, the way that he did when he did, yeah. because other, you know, they were gearing up for a big armed conflict with these guys. And I yeah. don't think they would have hesitated to. No, it would have been I a mean, The whole thing was kind of. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing was was kind of a miracle that no one was killed because. Man, um, uh, Mananchila sure tried to yeah. kill some people, <laughs> right? Uh, and 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 that's that's the funny thing about her is that she is, um, in some ways, such an admirable person. This is also partly why she reminds me of Milton Satan. Um, yeah. She's she's <laughs> such an admirable, fiercely loyal person. Um, but um, the things she does are awful um yeah. she's she's kind of a monster too and yeah. speaks about it with straight face mm-hmm. yeah she's <laughs> not repentant not repentant no. at all um no because of the pragmatist in her i mean she was doing what she felt she had to do and so because she had to do it that was the only moral justification she needed right and so yeah even down to the planning of poisoning people we had to win that election or they were going to wipe us out right and so uh yeah if she has perfectly pragmatic reasons for everything that they're doing. And th- that is another aspect that um, we should bring up um, and make sure we reiterate. This group had a lot of guns. They had lots of weapons. Um, it would have taken a National Guard sort of scenario to outgun these folks. Mm-hmm. And um, and had it come to that, it would have been a bloodbath um, some 15, 20 years before Waco, right? And so, you, uh, yeah, this is a, another kind of way in which this situation predicts uh, a lot of the kind of ways you know, future things that are going to happen um, happen. And so, yeah, this was uh, it was kind of merciful that he did leave and avoid that uh, that invasion that was going to result in casualties for sure. Um, so a couple of things that I want to sort of talk about here is uh, before we get out of here, the 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 way the film is told. I mean, do you guys have any impre- uh, any feelings about the as a film, the way the story is told? Chris, um, well, I I enjoy that it doesn't have narration from the perspective of the filmmaker. There's no Werner Herzog or yeah. um, you know <laughs> Ken Burns. Um, it's it's purely the people who are involved telling their different sides of the story. Um, like I said before, I think they want you to be surprised by how many sinister things really are going on in in this group and so they hold some of that back um they also hold back um the fact that the person who bombed the hotel didn't have anything to do with antelope um it was he was a member of another group um and and but they make it kind of seem as though this was you know people from um the town or, or whatever um uh, but but yeah, I think I think it's it's crafted to be a story that makes us question our assumptions, um, and, and I think it's well done on that front. 
Yeah, it's not like a Michael Moore film. Um, like I'm thinking all the way back to Roger and Me before he's the Michael Moore that we know now, which it kind of plays with facts on in a unethical way. If you've ever seen that movie, it sort of narr- in one example is it narrates a Reagan speech. It puts it, it puts it in the narration uh, in such a place that it looks like it was at a certain time and it wasn't, but it makes Reagan look worse based on when it happens. Right. And so he's manipulating facts there to get at his thing. This is sort of withholding things to create an air of mystery. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that's a little more passable for me in terms of yeah. uh, journalistic ethics, I suppose. But yeah. Um, Todd, what do you think about that? No, I, I, I really, really enjoyed the, the fact that this basically was a constructed conversation among principals, yeah. you know, among principal players. Mm-hmm. And um, that that did allow us to see things that we wouldn't have seen uh, if there had been a, you know, an overdubbed Werner Herzog. Although as much as I would like Werner Herzog to be speaking about some of these issues, <laughs> I can imagine it now. Thanks for sticking that in my head, Chris, because you are welcome me all day. <laughs> Oh man, um, we should talk about Grizzly Man sometime. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it on the list. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I, I, it, what it showed us is 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 various. I think um, characteristics of these of these people. Um, you know, you you definitely see that Niren, the the lawyer, is all in and still all in. Mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, his uh, tearing up at, at various moments when he's speaking of Osho, uh, um, it just it shows me how powerful the transformation of his life was for you know, however you want to evaluate that transformation. Because he's on camera so much, you really learn a lot about him. And the same, you know, I, I think the same uh, is true of the second mayor, and now I've forgotten his name. Yeah, uh, Philip um, Tolkis. Philip. Uh, yeah, and 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 Sheila for sure. I mean, um, you know, Sheila is someone who's uh, the the impression of whom had, for me has not really changed from when I saw this stuff unfolding live. Um, she is crafty as can be. Yeah. Um, you know, and and but the fact that she's in there speaking so much. Um, that we see her both now and then yeah. um, is really, really crucial to the telling of this story. Um, so I, I very much appreciated the way it was done in 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 that sort of successive monologue form. It really, really worked well. Uh, my question is, would you trust Sheila to take care of your loved one with <laughs> dementia in a, in a nursing home? <laughs> um, that, I was going to get to that. So uh, that's a great – so there's a – there is a redemption aspect to these stories, right? Um, the, the lawyer, Philip Tol- Tolkis, I think his name is. Um, he's sort of the, the lawyer of the group who becomes the second mayor, um, of Rajneesh Param. Param. Uh, and so he's like Todd is saying, utterly still. He seems like an utterly decent person, right? I mean, he's sort of found this community that he loved. That's you know, it's it's a cult, okay? But uh, but he, <laughs> for him, it was uh, it was all positive, and he still has all these kind of positive memories. He's very hard to dislike, right? Um, and and he, as a lawyer, I think he he seemed to do everything he could within the bounds of the law, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, and then Sheila herself, though we see at the end, her working in these kind of uh, nursing home situations with uh, with folks who are, are suffering from like uh, you know aging diseases, and and 
it's kind of beautiful, isn't it? Like, mm-hmm. uh, and so like, but the question is, is it the same Sheila? I mean, cause she does seem yeah. still yeah. just as calculating, but yeah. I can just, I, I used to work at a hotline where they would report like nursing home abuse and, and things like that. And I can just imagine, you know, hearing, <laughs> hearing, uh, things about, Manan Sheila, um, but but maybe you know maybe this is uh, the certainly the story that the documentary paints is of her being very sweet and taking care of these elderly people, and we do know that she's fiercely protective of the people that she's been kind of assigned to protect, um, at least as you know a character in the documentary she is. So mm-hmm. um, so maybe um, she did find a kind of redemption. I think the biggest redemption story is um, is Jane Storks. Yes, um, sure. That that's the one that will like move you to. Tears. Yeah, why don't, why don't you tell um, us that? Why don't you narrate that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, as, as far as I can understand, um, after she um, got out of prison for um, basically attempting to kill or sitting in a car with a gun outside of, um, you know, Charles Turner, I think. Um, uh, An his, official. His yeah, some yeah, official. Uh, yeah. Um, she. Uh, um, was in Germany because she wasn't going to be extradited from Germany to face any new charges. Um, but she couldn't travel back to Australia, which is where she was from. Um, and she found out that her son, um, who had just not, um, never really understood why she'd left in the first place. Um, I think it's the same son. Um, she'd heard that her son was dying of brain cancer, um, or, or some kind of terminal cancer. Um, and she, um, she ha- decided that in order to see her son, she would fly back to the United States and throw herself at the mercy of the court and and say, look, I want to see my son before uh, he dies. And the judge, um, you know, when, when the verdict was passed, said, you know, there are some times when justice is better than mercy and there are other times when mercy is better than justice and this is one of those times um and you know so i sentence you to time served and she said she realized that everyone there in the room um even if they didn't hadn't liked the rajneeshis or or whatever else that everyone there in the room were was kind of happy for her as a human being you know that that she was now able to go um back to Australia and be with her dying son. Um, so, um, so in many ways to me, that was kind of like, I liked her the most throughout. Um, yeah. She seemed to have her head on the straightest. Um, and, uh, and, and at the end, um, hearing about this sort of moment of redemption, um, I, I kind of understood why. Yeah. You don't really get any sense of the ending until the ending, right? You don't know anybody's role and you don't know the totality of this until the end. So all throughout, I mean, she has this very kind of, kind of somewhat spacey old lady demeanor. Okay. I don't know how else to say it. Um, and so, but you don't know how she feels. You don't know whatever happens. You don't know what happens later on down the line until it gets unfolded for us. And then at the end, you realize this lady who was so committed, um, she was so committed that she tried to kill, uh, I think his name was George Meredith. He was the Sheila's rival basically for Bhagwan's attention. And, um, and so there was some, injection that she tried to uh, uh uh kill him with or something and um and so i think that might be why she served the time um but then there was this other these other charge or maybe that was the one she was uh still that was still up o- over her head one of the she did a couple of things uh and mm-hmm. and so but out of loyalty right and then like her time in jail i think like broke her out of the the cult's kind of grip 
And and now she's like she seems to have like just be recovering with the rest of her life from having been a member of this cult, right? And so yeah, mm-hmm. her kind of redemption through the very legal system that was so kind of grossly I, I just felt like out of bounds with its previous dealings with the Rajneeshis, the legal system finally shows some mercy to somebody, right? Uh mm-hmm. and, and I feel like um that's a kind of a beautiful moment there when when you find out that they could have sent her for more time, but at this point it's you know, let's just, let's just call it a day. Right. And so, yeah, no, I think that that was kind of beautiful. And, uh, and yeah, and, and, and with Sheila's, I, I can't help but wonder. So Sheila's connivingness, is that a bad trait in and of itself or is it what it's in service of? So, I mean, her <laughs> disposition, like in the nursing home that she works in, um, it seems to be real, that loyalty, that fierce loyalty, is aimed at something good, right? Um, and yeah. in the context of the Bhagwan, that fierce loyalty was aimed at, with these other ends in mind. So I feel like almost she's, even her, she's like a victim of the system that she happens to be a part mm-hmm. of, right? And, and had she found another guru uh, to follow, she could have been, you know, she could have gone a different yeah. path with the same personality traits. I, I, I don't know about this, of course, but yeah. I don't know that she's evil. I think that her talents were misdirected, uh, sort of. I hope so. I think if you cross a line where you're willing to kill somebody and you're unrepentant about it afterwards, you're probably still willing to cross that line, especially in the context of caring for older people. This is, uh, which, this is a good point. Yes. Which, uh, like, yeah, which just gives me pause. But I'm I'm sure she's she seemed like a delightful person to have a conversation with, especially that like last moment at the end where she's like, okay, let's go have a drink, um, which is, which is you know, she's very charismatic. Um, um, one thing when I was reading about this, um, one thing that I heard the filmmakers say um, was that um, when they first visited her, she was she was kind of hesitant to talk about a lot of it, and she was just sort of showing her showing them around the home and looking at pictures, but doing it in a very like unenergetic sort of way. Like, yes, that was the past, and then they showed her a bunch of footage from it. And the second day after seeing all that footage, that's when you get most of these takes of her just being completely unrepentant about it because she's now reliving those moments, mm-hmm. uh, which is which I thought was really interesting. Um, that that part of what we're getting is Sheila um, resuming the way she used to think about this um, because the documentarians, even if they don't talk, are sort of interfering with the story. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, Todd, do you have thoughts on these issues? Well, Sheila, as, as I, I, one of the two of you said, is really the central character of this whole narrative. And, um, you know, when I, 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 I'm not sure what to think of her work in the nursing home. I, I, you know, I see at least the pictures that are portrayed someone who's very caring and loving to these people. And, and you know, perhaps there has been a, a, a renovation of the heart, uh, as it were, um, that has given her uh, the ability to express these things, which I do believe genuinely she held for the at least in the early days, the community that mm-hmm. they had assembled there. Um, and she's able to express them in a completely legitimate way in a completely um, uh, unfraught situation, right? The, the one thing that we we definitely, I think, have to 
uh, get to before we before we head for the doors here, though, is the you know the trucking in of all these people. Okay, yeah. so you know in the controversy uh, over the ca- county elections. Uh, this is a county that had about twenty thousand residents uh, in the in this time period, nineteen eighty five. Um, they truck in. Uh, enough homeless residents from Chicago, Philadelphia, Texas, Florida, wherever, um, to swell the ranks of Rajneeshpuram to some 6,000 people or something, but presumably mostly voting age. Um, you know, the, the, there is the, the interesting interplay between the reason they're brought there, which is solely to control the local elections, um, and and the good that, that is done for them. Yes. I mean, these people are the down and outs, right? They're the skid row people. They're the uh, former convicts out uh, who are out uh, of prison and and on the streets. Um, and they're brought to a place where they're they're working. They are fed. They are clothed you know, with hideously clashing clothing. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, they are given uh, an identity, a group identity that I think is something transformative for them. Um, and again, hear what I'm saying and what I'm uh, and, and and don't tag me with what I'm not. I think I think the the whole belief system and the whole revering of Rajneesh was horrible and misdirected affections, right? But these people were given a life that they didn't have otherwise. And so I can't wholeheartedly say this is all awful. Yeah. You know? And it just raises the question, can you do good things for bad reasons, right? And so, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, and there is no good answer to that. Good things were done, and maybe that's all that we need to know. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know, like, having never been, you know, homeless. Um, I don't know to what extent I would feel like, oh yeah, those were the days, you know, before <laughs> they dropped me off in the middle of the night in a drug state on a park bench. Yeah. Um, or if I would be more, um, if, if I would see this as yet another time in my life when it looked like something was going to pan out and it was completely ripped out from under me and make me more cynical and more jaded. Right. Um, and, yeah. and there's also the fact that it seems like a lot of them, um, did just have um, uh, mental illnesses um, that yeah. that you know prevented them from from being stable and and um, yeah I, I I view that incident as probably I, I think there are some that did stay around until the end actually but but I, I view that incident as as probably a little more sinister um, where where um, yeah they might have done this good thing and it might have been good in the moment and. You know, but but in the end, like these people are going to still come away with, oh, this is yet another, you know, place where I was taken in and then I wasn't good enough or you know, mm-hmm. subjected. Yeah, that is an important part of that story is that there is a, a, um, a political decision at one point within the community to expel a bunch of these folks for whatever violence they were mm-hmm. accusing them of all sorts of things. Um, and so, yeah, they do just get dumped off basically in some local city, many of them. And so, yeah, that is uh, definitely an important thing to keep in mind there. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple other things I want to talk about here. So I actually just a, an idea that flashed through my head and I just want to say, I don't know if there's anything to say about it. If I were like reading this film from the kind of, Oh, that sort of snarky new atheist intellectual dark web sort of uh, perspective. I would see this as like a, a manifestation of the idea that we all worship a God who isn't really there. And I think the Bhagwan's kind of blankness and absence 
is hmm. kind of can be read that way. He's sort of a, a God that they're all worshiping and doing things for, but is really barely there. He's like blank. Right. And so hmm. um, I think if I were like some, one of those cynical people, I would use this as a metaphor for talking about how all religion is just stupid fighting over, over, over a nobody in the sky. Right. But, um, but the, I do want to get to the I- ironic and they, they held it off to the end, the ironic transformation of this property into a, a youth camp for young life. And I know you guys have nice things to say about young life, right? And I don't have anything bad to say about it, but this seems to be like a youth camp for wealthy Christians. Uh, okay. And so this doesn't seem like <laughs> this doesn't seem like a place that is, uh, is unexclusive. And so it, they go through great lengths to draw a very clear connection, like an ironic parallel between um, these two things. And I think mm-hmm. one of the guys at the end of the, one of the locals said, well, it's, uh, it's basically the same thing, except instead of, uh, uh, free sex it's there's no sex or something like that uh, he had just some snarky uh, comment right um but they're better neighbors than the rajneeshis basically he did he was very kind of lukewarm about the whole thing what are your thoughts on that I, i'm uncommitted to i have no stance on young life one way or the other yeah i think they probably um from what i've heard from people that have worked with one young life they sound like a good organization um i've, I've got no reason to doubt that but that about the ending more than just about anything else upset me um just because as a Christian, it, it, it does, because I, I realized like this must be the promotional material that Young Life is using to promote these camps. I mean, who who else would, uh, uh, why would you promote a Christian discipleship camp with, uh, we have water slides and ropes courses and girls and bikinis. And uh, it, I, I mean, um, that, that just really, I can't, I can't see myself, um, and I, I was like in the in the late '90s, early 2000s. I was part of like a, um, a charismatic movement that was, you know, um, descended kind of from some of the Jesus movements that were going on in the '80s, you know. And and part of the attraction there for me as a young person was very similar to some of the things that you know attracted the Bhagwan's followers, which was this was real, and 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 we are going to. Uh, change the world right um th- this this sense of you know authenticity um and that video seemed to have none of that yeah. um and, and i just can't imagine a young person being attracted to that um in, in the same way that i was attracted to you know youth um my my own youth group as a as a you know teenager or the or the way that the bhagwan's followers are attracted to him in a way that that he's he's changed their lives, yeah. um, right, um, and and given them new purpose and, and things like that. So, yeah, it, it was bizarre to me. That's interesting. So you're upset not at the filmmakers for drawing the parallel, but for the for Young Life for creating that image of the summer camp. That's kind of uh, you think that that's kind of an irresponsible. Am I understanding you right? Um, uh, I think I think I I still think that young people want. Um, something that's real and that seemed like a um, bizarre way to promote something that you know they're saying is 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 real um and and it it really does contrast i think the filmmakers are right to kind of contrast it with um you know what what that community with what rajneesh param was doing um or or rajneesh or whatever you call that um, compound but um 
um, yeah, it's not that I have anything against Young Life itself. Um, I, again, I've heard that they do great work. Um, I see. Um, but um, but that way of promoting it really irked me. Yeah. Uh, so no, no, no. And I, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, it did seem like my kind of stereotype of Christian consumerism that drives me nuts. Is you know anybody who listens to the show long enough, we've hit on that enough times, right? And so uh, it did seem like this is the world with you know, contemporary Christian music instead of, you know, whatever mm-hmm. uh, Taylor Swift song is playing in the background. We just changed the, <laughs> We just changed the soundtrack and have the same images kind of. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, and I totally get that as well. And so I thought, yeah, the, the use of that was really, really ironic then and, uh, and should be kind of profoundly thought provoking for all Christians as it has been for, for, for Chris here. Um, Todd. Yeah, I, I would. So I didn't, I didn't see, I guess I didn't assume, um, that the video was all from their promotional material, although it very well could be, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I too know people who work with young life and, um, I do think there are good things that are done, but they do have that, um, that angle that, you know, where music, you know, the, 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 the worship, the worship, uh, scare quotes there that nobody can see. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing know, the Bhagwan <laughs> signal, so nobody can see it. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> but there, you know, the, the worship time is a time for, uh, slam dancing, you mm. know, and a time for, you know, hands raised, jumping up and down with the leaders up front who are leading the worship music. Right. So that, that image was whether or not it comes from their promotional material is a very direct parallel to stuff that they had just shown like five minutes before. Uh, You know, and it just left me with that cringy, uneasy feeling, um, which is partly, uh, you know, aimed at the producers for, for making what could be seen as a very brazen attempt to discredit Christianity. Um, but also, uh, you know, is, is, is held in combination with the fact that, yeah, uh, there is this aspect to contemporary youth camps and youth ministry that is profoundly disturbing. Um, so yeah, I, 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 and I, I guess I took it more as I'm, I think they're being pretty cynical with this, um, I, th- I don't know. I, That's I, how I read it. it. I think it's it's definitely making an argument in a way that the film shies away from in many other ways. It doesn't really try to make an argument so often. This is definitely making an argument that there is a strong parallel here that we should consider. And I kind of consider that argument to be, though, part of the morally ambiguous project of the whole film. I think the whole film, as we were saying before, we're in a moment now where – we only see our enemies and it's very clear to us who's good and who's bad. And it's, and, and it shouldn't be so clear. This film is trying to muddy up what we're seeing too clearly in, in a false way. And I think it's trying to get us to ask the question. It's trying to get Christians maybe to ask questions or maybe whether it's there's their intent or not, um, that the presence of that moment in this film should make Christians ask themselves, if I think that called is wacky, how different am I really? Right. Really. And so, and I think that, um, asking that question, um, like, you know, just focusing the gaze inward, I think is a, uh, uh, is a healthy thing to do. And I, I found it to be just like, 
my jaw was dropped when I saw that, and, and I did not expect that ending to the film. But when I saw it, I just thought, yeah, this is uh, that's very interesting. So, <laughs> well, the bikini-clad teenager, I mean, for sure, you know, that brings to mind some other images. Which, and family warning here, this is not a family program. Oh, right? I no. should have said that at the beginning. Some of the archival footage, I mean, they they shot everything, right? And so they uh, they were, I don't know what they were filming this stuff for, but they filmed everything. So there were some you know naked bodies flopping all over the place uh yeah so well that's you, that's you, another <laughs> layer of this because i uh you know when reading about this and and what was going on in puna there actually were quite a few sexual assaults occurring during this time yeah. when people were just following whatever you yeah. know instinct they felt like following right so so that's that's also something that if you tend to track along the left side of this controversy is going to give you pause um yep but Yep. Yep. Free love comes is not free. Free. Free love isn't free, right? As they yeah. say. <laughs> and so yeah. No, I think that that's absolutely true. And so yeah. And if you're having aversion to quivering, shaking hippie flesh, then uh, you know, be, watch this one with some cautious cautiousness because there's a, quite a lot of it. So I think we all have that aversion, though, right? <laughs> we I mean, all should at least. Yeah. So um, there are enough parents of the uh, of the of the. Thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, fellas, thanks so much. A for suggesting it. I would have never watch the series without the, the without the suggestion, Chris. That was great. You're welcome back anytime. Let me know if you ever have Thank another you. idea. Uh, it was great talking to you. You had some great insights here. And Todd, thanks for bringing your perspective as well. It was awesome having you in here. It's sort of almost a an eyewitness account to the events and and hearing you kind of uh, reflect on it. Uh, through the lens of watching this film, it was, it was really great. And like I said, I just maintain that films like this, because they are so kind of morally ambiguous, that's their value is that moral ambiguity opens a space for like kind of real thoughtful reflection. So, um, listener, if you haven't watched the show yet, I, I, uh, I highly recommend going to watch this series and, uh, and, and, and just think about what it kind of means for us. So, um, and like Chris did, if they all have any ideas for the show, uh, please, uh, don't be shy. Let me know. I'm more than happy to invite new people on. And, uh, as always, go to the website, go to Facebook, like the Facebook page, and uh, and I do the whole iTunes thing. I'll read the reviews as they come up. So, uh, For Chris Pipkin and Todd Pedler, my name is Danny Anderson, thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Hey,